Welcome to Ricochet's Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute, The Week Magazine, and CNBC. Each week, the podcast features a lively conversation with top thinkers and doers on the most important and interesting economic and policy issues of our time. Archived episodes can be found at ricochet.com and follow-up blog posts and transcripts at AEI.org. My guest today is the economist Eric Hanischek. He is a visiting scholar here at AEI and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, where his research focuses on education policy and its impact on economic growth. He's here today to talk about his recent work on teachers' impact on student outcomes and the American education system more broadly. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's, we'll, we'll start off with, a, I think, a new or, or forthcoming uh, paper uh, you've written called The uh, Value of Smarter Teachers which found that smarter teachers are strongly correlated with better student outcomes. I, I guess that would seem intuitive to me, like that would be the case. Uh, is, it, is, it a, is, that, is, that, is it not intuitive? Is, this like, is that a controversial finding? Well, it's, I don't know if it's controversial. It hasn't been available in the past because we really haven't had measures of the uh, skills or achievement or test scores of teachers in the past. And what was interesting about this paper is that we have ways to compare teachers across countries because teachers took a common test in math and reading across countries. So we can see how smart our teachers are compared to those in Finland or other countries. Right. And the tests, are those the, the like the tests that, you know, you always hear about uh, Americans, they scored, you know, 20th in the world in math. Is it, are, is it those tests they probably took in high school or something? Well, <laughs> the answer is correct. They're not quite those tests. Yeah. Uh, this was from a survey of the labor force in various countries, mm-hmm. the people 25 to 65. And interestingly, they gave all of the participants in this survey a battery of fairly simple math and reading tests so that they could compare what people uh, did with different skills in different countries. Uh, this this is an obvious and perhaps dumb question, and you can you can wave it away quickly. Why why is this finding? Why, why do you think it's correlated? What 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 does the fact that that, that teachers score well uh, on some standardized tests? Why should that impact how good a teacher they are and the outcomes they have on their students? Well, let me let me say at the beginning that it doesn't explain all of the differences in teacher effectiveness, but it it is a systematic and uh, significant factor. Why is it important? Well, we think of education largely as being able to adapt to different circumstances. The value of education is that when something changes, people that are more educated can analyze what's going on and figure out what to do. That's what goes on in classrooms all the time. Teachers are trying to figure out something, how do they react to the responses they're getting from kids or the tests that kids take. Sort of, sort of, and my sort of simple conclusion would be that it would be great if in the United States we had more smart people as defined by doing well in these tests become teachers. How, how, does, that, how does it compare the United States to other countries as far as 
those you know, smart smart people, people who do well in these tests who become teachers. Is it do other countries get a lot more of those people choosing to go into that profession? Some countries get more. Some pe- countries get less. Um, it's not clear that you want your smartest people as teachers. You still need a few rocket scientists here and there, and and other people. But what we've seen over time is that as opportunities for women in the labor market have expanded, uh, the skills and test scores of teachers have has gone down. So when I went to school sometime in the past, there were basically only two occupations for women. They could be teachers or nurses. Uh, and now we know that women are throughout the economy as doctors and lawyers and business people and news broadcasters. And this has taken some of the smarter women out of teaching and into other occupations, leaving teaching with not as well-prepared people. Now, other countries emphasize a lot more um, the quality of teachers. So Finland is always the example where they have a very well-educated population, so they have a better pool to draw from. But they also draw their teachers from higher up in the distribution of skills of college graduates. So where the U.S. uh, has a lower pool of potential teachers, it also draws uh, teachers from slightly below the median or the middle of the distribution of uh, skills that goes into teaching. So in Finland, for example, most – how would you break it down? Is it like most teachers come from the top third or something? In the United States, most teachers come from the bottom third. How would you break that down? Well, the um, the average teacher in Finland comes from something like the 65th percentile of skills of college graduates. Mm-hmm. The average teacher in the U.S. comes from the 47th percentile. So the U.S. is systematically drawing from lower down among the college graduates, and that has an impact. And I, actually, as I was just sort of doing a little bit of research, I actually ran across a, a blog post that I wrote, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago um, about some other research, and uh, and, I, and uh, if, I've, if I'm mischaracterizing the, your conclusion, please let me know. Uh, and I think your finding was that if we replaced in the United States the bottom 5 to 10 percent of, t- of teachers with not superstar teacher, but merely with an average teacher, it would raise the achievement of U.S. students to at least the level of higher performing nations such as Canada uh, and Finland. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, that's, that's, one that's, of, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it always surprises people. But the bottom of the teacher distribution, this is now in terms not of these test scores, but in their impact on student achievement, the bottom of the distribution is really hurting us. And we have no policies that are designed to systematically weed out the people that aren't appropriate for the job. And that leaves us at a disadvantage. Now, if you think about this for just a second, you figure out what's going on. If I have a really bad teacher um, and in the bottom 5 to 8 percent, that means that on average I'm losing one year of my K to 12 schooling, um, and that's costly. Um, So if we could just uh, move those people out to better occupations for them and bring in an average teacher, our nation could jump to Canada, which by other work that I've done suggests that 
future economic growth would be noticeably higher, like eight-tenths of a percent per year or higher of annual growth. Now, most people think eight-tenths is a small number. Well, eight-tenths in terms of growth rates is a huge number because we've averaged one-and-a-half percent per year growth over the last 25 years. Enough listeners, I think, if, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know we talk so much about like productivity and economic growth and ways to squeeze more productivity out of the economy. That actually sounds – to many of the listeners will say, well, that sounds like a, a fairly big number. Superficially, it seems simple. Well, gee, you know, just – just replace those. I mean, can't we recruit a bunch of average, you know, average people to become teachers? I mean, wh- why why can't we not fix that problem? Is it is it because how this, the school system is currently set up, where, it's, where teachers get tenure, have unions, you can't fire people, and it's just not set up with that goal in mind? Um, absolutely, that's part of the, a big part of the problem. It's partly teachers' unions, but not entirely teachers' unions. It's that the system is designed to have tenure, not to make very active uh, personnel decisions and, in fact, not to have very good evaluations until fairly recently. And so right now there's a big battle going on about how to evaluate teachers because that's the last uh, barricade before we start actually using evaluations for some purpose. Right. And you you think, yes, we can find – in a school system, we can find who the good teachers are, who the bad. I mean, it's, it's easy to find, you know, just the superstar teacher and also, the, you know, the person who obviously is phoning it in. Um, but to find out kind of that middle range, imagine it's tougher. Can we find out the person who is not in the bottom 1%, but maybe they're in the bottom third? Can we, can we determine that? Well, I think we have a lot of confusion in the middle, but it, um, the message that I was hoping to give you in your prior blog is that we ought to just concentrate on the extremes of the distribution. We want to keep the best teachers for a little bit longer, and so we want to give them incentives to stay in teaching, and we want to eliminate the bottom teachers and move them out to something that's better for them. And so those, I don't think there's any confusion any place about who is at the either extremes. Right. Uh, you can walk into a school for a very short period of time and you could probably walk down the hall and, and identify the really good and the really probably, good. Probably just pe- peeking through the, the window on the door and look at the classroom and probably... Exactly. That's probably a pretty good first cut. So so is it a, so it's so it's not a case necessarily that we need to like start having some sort of massive recruiting drive, do we? Because uh, that seems hard. In that same – actually, in that same blog post – man, that was some blog post. In that same <laughs> blog post, uh, there was a study um, looking uh, – they did a poll of high-achieving undergraduate students, and they were just very negative about the profession. Uh, they, they think it's you know, not prestigious. Uh, they think education is an easy major, and therefore, obviously, they don't think it attracts very good students. They wouldn't want to be a part of it. Only 35% describe teachers as, quote, smart. And it was education seen uh, as a profession that only average people chose. So there's a lot of, you know, sort of bias against teaching. So it seems it's going to be – that seems like a hard opinion to change. Do we need to change it, or can we – or as you said, can we just kind of use the system we have, have people stick around longer and that sort of thing? Well, I think we could do well with a few substantive changes. It, it's not clear from everything we know that uh, 
the average education school improves the teaching ability or effectiveness of anybody compared to just going to some undergraduate school. But what we have trouble doing is predicting who is going to do well before they get into the classroom. We have to adjust the system, in my opinion, to pay attention to whether somebody's doing a good job or not. And that that's something that we ought to be able to do because the economic value to individual students and to the economy is so enormous. I mean, let me, we know a lot about how different um, teachers are in terms of how much they add to the achievement of their students. Right. So if we take a teacher at the 75th percentile of their teacher distribution, so a pretty good teacher, mm-hmm. and um, look at the achievement we can expect from her class, think of a class of 30 students, and then look at what happens to these students when they go into the labor market. We know in the labor market that people who know more earn more on average. Mm-hmm. So if we just take the historical pattern of earnings is how they relate to um, the achievement of students and then add up over the lifetime of the students what this 75th percentile teacher did. What do you think the answer is? Well, on an annual basis, on an annual basis, if we compare this 75th percentile teacher to just an average teacher, she creates $400,000 in future income. That's in present value. We're waiting the current, um, adding up over her class. So that um, says that there's a real value to trying to attract and retain those really good teachers. Right. So, but uh, we have to stop. I have to give you the other end, of okay, course. Yeah. It's the bottom of the distribution. Right. And take a 10th percentile teacher. That 10th percentile teacher with a class of 30 compared to an average teacher again subtracts $800,000 each year in future earnings of her students. Uh, that, those are really pretty – fairly uh, stunning numbers. Um, the, I know when I do talk to some, some people about education and they'll say, listen, um, you know, poor performing students uh, at, 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 at you know, poor performing schools – you know, they come from bad family backgrounds, dysfunctional, dysfunctional families. Um, there's not much, you know, there's not much good you can do for those kids. But if you took, if you took the teaching staff from one of these, you know, Tony Magnet schools, I forget, what's the, you know, we're in D.C., what's the one in Falls Church? I don't, know if it's, I, forget, I don't know if it's James Madison or something. Yeah, yeah, Thomas, yeah, Thomas Jefferson. Thank you, thank you, Matt. Uh, Matt, the producer. Uh, if you took that teaching staff and you took that and you just, you just moved them uh, went down, you know, 95, went to the city and put that staff in a poor performing D.C. high school. Would there be a big difference in how those kids did? Probably not a huge difference um, because one of the things that surprises everybody is that there's much more variation in teacher quality within any school as a compared to between schools. Okay. And so the schools that you're identifying as disasters, have kids that are coming unprepared for class and their families might not be helping them and so forth. 
but mixed in there are some really good teachers that are helping those kids along, but they're lost. They, I mean, in terms of what you see, because they don't bring them up to grade level, but they do bring them up from where they would be. And what we see is that in all schools, it's a matter of paying attention to who's doing a good job and who isn't. And whether it's recruiting, um, recruiting people have the capability to become very good teachers or keeping the good teachers longer, is it – is it, just, is it a money issue? You just you got to pay those folks more? What's, 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 what are the key things? Or is it giving them, I don't know, more flexibility to teach the way they want to teach? I, you know. um, I think it's a combination of things and different things work with different people. But it's a setting up a system of incentives that work. I've been looking at schools in Dallas, Texas recently. Dallas radically changed the way they evaluate and pay teachers. And uh, they now are much more attuned to the learning outcomes and, and evaluating teachers on learning outcomes. One of the things they did is look at their worst performing schools. The, uh, they have a special category of the very bottom schools that for a long time have been dysfunctional. They went in and they replaced the principals in these schools um, and gave some bonuses to good principals to go to these bottom schools. They also looked at teachers and how effectiveness they had been in the past. They had a, this evaluation of their performance and paid the really top uh, teachers $10,000 a year more to go to these bad schools. And then the next round of rank of teachers in terms of effectiveness, they gave bonuses of $6,000. Uh, and then other people just got their normal pay. So what they did was to adjust pay in these schools to the effectiveness of teachers. They got a very different group of teachers who are interested in teaching there, and all of a sudden you saw that these bottom schools were surpassing the performance of the next-to-bottom schools and on their way toward more average schools in the district. So it's a matter of adjusting the way the personnel system works to pay attention to what you care about, and that is our students' learning. Excellent. Uh, Rick, before we get into uh, kind, of, kind of another set of questions, I just want to ask just a, cu- a couple more about this. Uh, it seems to me that any idea that you have actually, – actually, I'm going to go to uh, another question first. Um, there's, other, there's other things people suggest to help kids learn better. You have uh, – the teachers need to be trained better. Um, we need to have smaller class sizes. Um, maybe we need, we need to have more laptops or better laptops or, or something in the classroom. What do we know about some of these other ways – to uh, boost education scores and achievement? We know that on average, none of them are silver bullets, that none of them work consistently. They might work in some instances, but not in others. Um, We know um, from some very good evaluations uh, that were sponsored by the U.S. Department of Education that professional development is a very difficult thing to do. We can't just take the existing stock of teachers and pump them up to move them up. Coach them up. <laughs> Coach them up. We can't do that very well. It's it's sort of like taking me out on the soccer field and you can make me a little bit better, but you, I'm not going to be out there with Maradona. We know that 
from lots of experience now that the push to have smaller and smaller classes has done one dramatic thing, increase the cost of schools. It has not dramatically changed achievement across situations where you've had smaller classes. Um, the Any impact of class size is much, much smaller than the difference between a good and a bad teacher. Right. We haven't quite learned how to harness technology and to make the better laptops work all across the board. We know that some people can use them, but others can't. And part of the problem is that we try to push universal solutions that we hope work everywhere. We right. just found this new thing and we'll make everybody do this. And it doesn't quite work. Right. Uh, I th- I- well, I think, you know, and and I'll apologize, but I think it was, um, you know, Larry Ellison of Oracle. You know, there's a lot of interest in the tech community about what they can bring to education. And yeah, I think, yeah, like, and I hope <laughs> this is not like an apocryphal story, but I think it's the point that he was speaking to a room full of teachers, and he said, the good, like, the good news is that in ten years, all of you will be making a million dollars a year, and they're like, yay! And he says, the bad news is we're only going to need like ten percent of you. <laughs> Because, you know, so because we'll have more technology in the classroom and teachers will become – everyone will be on a computer and teachers will be more like coach, kind of going from student to student. And therefore, we can take all those good teachers and we can scale them up. Have them teach, rather than having smaller classrooms, they should have bigger classrooms. But each of those classrooms would have a good teacher plus, you know, fantastic software. I don't know if that's a scenario you've heard about. How fantastic is that? So I can't attest to Larry, Larry Ellison's quote, but I can say that there's lots of experimentation going on, and I live in the middle of Silicon Valley, and some of the things that are being developed there are just extraordinary. You, you just sit back and, and can't believe the cleverness of the people that have made these things. And then you turn around and you see that they're not being used that much or that effectively in many classrooms. They are in some, but not in others. And to the economist, this is the simple story that we don't have the incentives right to encourage people that can use these technologies effectively to actually use them and those that can't use the technologies in the classroom to avoid them and do what they can do better. Um, So one of the things we know about teaching is that it's extraordinarily heterogeneous. Um, the people teach in very different ways and can get the same results by doing very different things. And what this has meant is that researchers who go around looking for the one thing that's going to change the teaching profession and the learning of kids, they can't find it because it's confused by people doing very different things. All right. Uh, uh, speaking of silver bullets or magic bullets, um, uh, Tyler Cowan and the folks at his uh, his blog, they had a, a piece, I know it got a lot of attention, about something I had not heard of. Um, it's a teaching method called direct instruction, mm-hmm. which I guess is that you take, you know, you know, math and English and then you kind of you break them down to these sort of discrete tasks and you teach them in modular and it's called very logical. There's not a lot of, I think, flexibility among teachers because you're talking about teachers of different styles. But according to this, there's really one style. We know it works. Are you familiar with all with direct instruction? What sure. do you think of it? Sure. Well, it works in some places and doesn't in others, and there's lots of mixed opinions. Um, the place where I know th- 
that it seems to work pretty well is in developing countries. Uh, there are um, one of the things that's happening in developing countries is the explosion of low-cost private schools, where private firms are coming in and offering schooling at ten dollars a month to uh, students. Students come and they. Uh, work. One of them that I know very well, Bridge Academies, works very hard at developing lesson plans that appear on smartphones for teachers, and teachers can follow the lesson plan and the instruction on their smartphone. And at the same time, Bridge Academy can follow what the teacher is doing right. and can also get test results to know whether it's working. Um, and in that situation, it works very well. Um, now, interestingly, the, these places are just outperforming the government schools in many locations. But our own teachers unions have mounted a campaign against private uh, companies teaching in Kenya. Um, and oh. one, of the, one of their arguments is, well, you've got to allow for the um, innovations of the teachers <laughs> in Kenya, where the teachers themselves are not very well educated. Um, but they're, I guess, afraid that competition any place in the world has to be stomped out because it might catch on. <laughs> I want to talk a bit more about, uh, about, the, about the role of competition. First, another Another uh, another economist we've had on is Brian Kaplan, who wrote a book basically saying that education uh, is overrated. And let me just read just a bit from a um, uh, our, our our back and forth from maybe a few months ago. Where I asked him uh, that there's research out there showing that if you increase a country's education level, it will translate in faster growth. And what do you think of that research? And Brian Kaplan said, "I would say that is wrong." Uh, when I started my book. I believe that I believe that to be true, but when I actually went out and did all the empirical work and delved into it, I couldn't find a connection between education and national prosperity. What I, all I discovered is that the main people working on it don't find much of a relationship at all, and they're trying to figure out why not. Maybe it's because increased years of schooling really doesn't enrich countries, and while it may affect your personal <clears throat> wealth, it doesn't affect sort of national wealth. Is what, what, do you, what do you make of that? Is, is, what does the research really say about about education and national prosperity? Well, Brian and I actually had a debate here at AEI about two months ago on his book, and he's trying to make the strongest case possible that education just signals people that are smart, basically, and um, it uh, doesn't provide any new skills. Um, on the relationship with growth, I think that he's right if you look narrowly and incorrectly as he is doing. The situation is that years of schooling um, that he looks at and relates years of schooling to economic growth or economic prosperity is a terrible measure of the skills of people in different countries. It implies that a year of schooling in Peru gives the same learning as a year of schooling in Japan. And nobody would believe that when phrased in that way. Um, and so when you look at the cross-country relationship between growth and years of schooling, you don't see much. You see a little, but not much. But if you actually measure 
what people know in different countries, which we can now do. We have tests of math and science and reading ability across countries. Uh, 75 or so countries participate in these tests at this time. And you can rank what people know in different countries. And it turns out that what people know is very, very closely related to growth rate differences. And you can explain almost all of the difference in growth rate historically across countries. These are long-term growth rates from uh, the last half century. Um, You can explain almost all of the variations across countries by what people know. That's why these tests that we're talking about and so forth are so important. Some people say, ah, oh, these tests don't matter. Let's, let's forget about them and we shouldn't have uh, no child left behind paying attention to whether kids are learning or not. And that's bad, bad advice. Is there, is there a paradox? Because, you know, and for decades we've been hearing that we don't educate kids particularly well in this country. We score, it seems, not particularly outstandingly on, on, on these standardized tests compared to some classroom in, in Singapore or Shanghai. But yet, the United States is the most successful economy. We're, we're on the technological frontier. Um, th- does, that, does that back up, actually, yeah. Brian Kaplan's argument? There, there, there seems there's something wrong that, that if we're doing so mediocre, why are we such a you know, technologically advanced Silicon Valley and all that? Jim, that, that, that's a very good question. Um, and there, there's, uh, have I invalidated all your research? No, uh, I don't think I have. <laughs> I, I hope, hope not here now. But uh, <laughs> um, if you look at the U.S. economy, um, as we've seen in the past, skills are not the only thing that are going on because over time we have developed essentially the best institutions for an economy. We have free and open uh, movement of labor and capital in the U.S. We have fairly limited government interventions in uh, what goes on in industry. Um, We have secure property rights and well-established rule of law. Uh, That doesn't exist or hasn't existed in other countries, and so that gives you great advantage. We have had historically more education than all other countries in the world or almost all other countries in the world. We have had the best colleges and universities in the world. And we've been able to import smart people, skilled people from abroad through our immigration. Um, There's a stunning statistic that I almost always have to give these days since hearing it. If you look at all of the PhDs in the U.S. in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math fields, 56% were foreign-born. So we're able to attract very smart people from abroad, keep them here, and have them work. Now, each of those things I mentioned in the past, our advantages there are slipping relative to other countries. Um, other countries have figured out that they shouldn't interfere quite so much in their economy. That Think of China and India, which has gotten huge growth out of the fact that they started with a horrid economic system and have tinkered with it enough to, to improve it. Um, we no longer produce the most education. If you look at 
in terms of high school graduation, we're 17th in the world in terms of the portion of our people completing high schools. Um, Colleges and universities are still pretty good, although not uniformly. If you get past the elite research universities, they're not uniformly better than elsewhere in the world. And then there's recent uh, problems with thinking about immigration, that you've probably had a uh, podcast on this in the past, that that there's questions about trying to slow down the uh, immigration into our country of smart people. Can we learn things from other countries that score well on these tests? Yeah, every seems like every couple there'll be a new sort of superstar country. It'll be Finland or sure. Singapore, and we'll say, well, what are what are they doing? As you look at it, are there things we could be doing differently, or is it each of these countries is different, and you can't necessarily compare the two? Can are there things other countries are doing well that we can import easily into this country, other than their smart people importing them? So there's some uh, some big overall pictures uh, that you get looking across countries. Um, Finland is is my favorite example because uh, people discovered that they were near the top of the league tables for these international math and science. And I'm sure there are education experts, you know, booking flights at that that airport jammed. I think I'm the last uh, education expert not to have visited Finland. Um, So you have one data point of their performance and people draw about 15 lines through that point. Depending upon what's your favorite policy, they say, well, Finland does this, so we ought to do it. What you get from the international picture is, yes, there's a lot of heterogeneity. There's lots of of cultural differences and so forth. But some basic things like having a good accountability system that measures performance and pays attention to performance of students, having more competition – uh, among schools and more free, freedom of choice, um, having uh, uh, more incentives for good performance seem to have positive impacts around the world. They're not overwhelming. There's not one single thing. But all of these things add up to a picture of things that we should be doing more. All right, now we're uh, we're kind of at the end here, or approaching the end. So I'm going to go on the lightning round. All the, every question I ask you, I'm sure you can give a great ten to fifteen minutes TED talk on each of them. But so, uh, but I'm going to try. To, I'm going to try to get through them uh, quickly because I, I'm pretty sure these are ones that would pop into most people's head. Sort of the new focus uh, K through twelve on sort of the STEM education. Is that a, do you agree with that? Is that a good focus, or is, are we going are we going too far and forgetting about you know the value of English and History. I think the focus that goes along with STEM education on better general skills is important. Um, I don't have strong opinions that we should do all STEM and no history and philosophy. Do you think we should try to push more people to go to college? A traditional four-year, you know, brick-and-mortar college? Well, I think much of the current rhetoric goes too far. We don't want everybody to go to college in any way. Um, But... I focus much more on preparing people for college. I think we want people to be better prepared when they go to college, and that might include a larger number, but it might include just better prepared people. Uh, early child education, whether it's you know uh, universal pre-K or Head Start programs, should we should we be doing something there? What does the research tell you? Well, there's uh, 
research that is pretty persuasive that suggests that early learning is important and it's and having preschool particularly for disadvantaged kids that aren't getting as much push in the home is valuable what we haven't figured out is how to organize this fund it and organize it is it universal or is it means tested etc and we haven't figured out what are the elements of a good preschool program so you can say let's have preschool well the evaluations, for example, of our Head Start program, which is our federal preschool program, have suggested that you don't get much out of it or at least any lasting impacts. So we have to pay attention to quality at the preschool level as much as at the K-12 level. Uh, so the typical center-right ideas are education, again, more school choice, competition, expanded uh, expanded vouchers, um, what can we expect out of those ideas as far as transforming the educational system? Well, the best evidence comes from charter schools, which are public schools but provide choices to parents. They appear to be doing, on average, um, a superior job in many large urban areas where the families don't have as much choice as you and I have of just moving our house to get a different school. It's... Uh, not the case that all choice schools are better than all public schools. In fact, there's a big distribution. And with charter schools, as with traditional public schools, we ought to pay attention to closing down schools that are not helping kids. Um, And the market itself does not appear to be sufficient to just lower demand and get rid of bad uh, performing schools. I mean, mean, how different does our education system – I mean, I'm always skeptical about ideas that say, say, you know, we have to have a clean slate and we have to scrap this. It seems like that any idea needs to – needs to sort of work within sort of the broad parameters of what we have where we're going to have – probably have a lot of very traditional kinds of, you know, public schools that we're probably going to have teachers' unions. So – can can your idea is sort of generally what, ne- what really sort of needs to change to you know get better teachers into the school? Given that the whole system's not going to change, we're not. It's not going to be all charters. It's not going to be all private schools. We're not all going to send our kids to Catholic schools. Sure. There's going to be big big public school system with unions. So what needs to change? Well, absolutely, you're absolutely correct. That if we just announced the national voucher program, we would probably still have. of our students going to traditional public schools and moving private school from 10 to 20% or something like that. Um, The thing that needs to change is we have to pay attention to performance. Uh, We have failed to do that in the past. The real key is we have to look at whether kids are learning and push along those lines. And I think the answers are very different across different school systems, different uh, capacities of the schools or demands of kids. So what we need to think about is some sort of continuous improvement mechanism at the local school and the local district level where they try out things that seem to be working and keep those that work and get rid of those that don't. I I, I tried it in all the biggies I often hear about STEM, Uh, more competition, school choice, vouchers. Uh, vocational education. Um, you've been at least skeptical about that. What's what's? Uh, well, my my concern. I have um, two concerns about the U.S. discussion of this. The first concern is that President Trump has pushed 
vocational education and apprenticeship programs, I think, largely aimed at the building trades. And he has explicitly said, well, our K-12 system is failing. Let's provide some alternative system. And I am very concerned about that focus that ignores the general education because that's going to lead to a problem in the future. The problem in the future with vocational education is that the more specific skills you give people today, the least likely they're going to be able to adapt to changes in the future. So if the economy and firms are changing rapidly, you need a flexible workforce that can adapt to it. And if people have old skills that don't readily move into new skills, then they're going to be in trouble. So think of Detroit auto workers who had a very clear set of skills that all of a sudden were uh, completely depreciated by the use of robots to make uh, automobiles. Um, that's what we have to avoid producing the future of people that cannot adapt and adjust to changes in technology and find jobs and find employment. So if the U.S. is going to push toward more vocational education, it has to also think about what do you do about learning of adult learning, which is something that we've never quite figured out. And the evidence I was giving you about the concerns later in life actually comes from Germany. Germany has the world's most advanced apprenticeship program, vocational training program. But at age 45 or 50 or so, you start seeing people who have gone through vocational training dropping out of the labor market, which I think reflects the fact that they just aren't adapting very well to differences in the economy. So then, so, so then what are you recommending? So I'm recommending, again, that we strengthen our early education, our general skills at K-12. to If people have strong general skills, I'm not against providing more specific firm-based skills. Largely, that can be done at the employer level because the U.S., unlike Europe and Germany, doesn't have a well-developed certification uh, system that covers in Germany 350 different occupations. We don't have that. But would you recommend like more of a certif- some sort of certification? That we you know we let straighten out our K through 12 and then have these other pathways other than other than a four year college. I think that what I was talking about before is the U.S. has grown very well by not having a lot of formal rigid rigid right. uh, labor market regulations and rules, and so. Not having a lot of certification has, in fact, increased the flexibility of the U.S. labor market, and that's paid off. That's why we're rich. Well, well I, I can tell you, as we sort of wrap up here, sort of the number one question when I go out and talk to people, and they want, they, you know, they say, always from AI, you know, they're going to ask me about taxes, <laughs> tax reform, or re- regulation. They want to know about education, and they want to know how their kids, how schools are preparing their kids for, you know, for a high-tech future, the digital economy, you know, the rise of the robots. And do you feel that we're figuring out how to do that or we're not doing that well? Well, I, I think that depends upon the individuals. I mean, if we look at some of these uh, listing of job skills by different jobs and job titles, uh, you know, there's, there's some number like half the job titles we have today 
didn't exist 15 years ago. So, uh, the, I'm not sure that that's the right number, but it's uh, how do you uh, how do you uh, provide specific occupational training if you have no idea what the occupations are going to be? Well, the way you do that is providing very strong, broad analytical cognitive skills for people, and probably some non-cognitive skills of how people interact and perseverance and all that. But you provide the skills so people can, in fact, learn from the where robots are, in fact, coming into place and where they aren't, and be the robot controllers. Right, right. And, and this is a, this is a big question. I'm hesitant. I hesitate to ask it toward the end, uh, but it's it's interesting, and I also I also hear this a lot too. So I'm going to ask anyways. Um, how malleable are students? If performance comes down to, you know, IQ and family structure. Can it really be? Can that really be dealt with policy-wise? You just have some kids are some kids are smart kids, and hey, they come from great families, and that's more than going to offset anything we we can do with teachers or or competition. That that's the kid. There's no doubt that families are extraordinarily important to education. Nobody doubts that at all. What we do know now is that good teachers can overcome deficits that come to students from family backgrounds. Um, one quick example to give you an idea of this. I, sometime in the past, did a study in Gary, Indiana, in uh, old falling apart Rust Belt City, uh, that was a study of all low-income black students in the Gary public schools. The best teachers were getting a year and a half of learning each academic year. The worst teachers were getting half a year of learning each academic year. So depending upon what classroom you went to, you could get as much as a full year of learning difference in the outcomes. The evidence we have on the variations in teacher effectiveness suggests that if you had four or five years with a good teacher, mm -hmm. you could overcome the average back family background difference between a poverty kid and a non-poverty kid. So it's a matter of both will and management that we have good teachers in the classrooms for poor kids. And that's not that we want to take them away from kids that are doing better. It's This is a statement that in the long run, the only way that our schools are going to change is by one way or another getting better teachers in the classroom. And, and, and finally, because uh, I know there are, I know there are listeners who, who want me to ask this: Should we abolish the Department of Education? Oh, I think that's generally not a, a very sensible idea. Uh, the Department of Education right now is mainly administers a set of grant programs that are authorized by Congress. So we could move the grant programs to some other department and still have the same people there. And I don't quite see that um, reclaiming the building on Maryland Avenue buys us much uh, because they're uh, right now largely just administering some large programs. And do you think those programs are effective? Um, in part, they are. They uh, The big programs at the K-12 level for the department involve uh, special education and supporting that in 
uh, the states, and that's a valuable thing to do, although, again, we have to look more at the outcomes of that, as with all public schools, uh, on an ongoing basis. Um, and they provide extra funds for disadvantaged students to try to deal with the problem you just mentioned. You know, some families don't prepare their kids as well as others, and so it's providing extra resources. Again, in all of these areas, the key is uh, that we have to get all of our energy and focus on whether kids are learning or not. And so that holds for federal programs, which are only 10% of all K-12 spending, uh, and it holds for state and local programs. Uh, My guest today has been Rick Hanischek. Rick, thanks for coming on the podcast, and I hope you come back. Love to have you back. Love to come back. Thanks, Jim. Ricochet. Join the conversation.